Conversations on Changing the World, a podcast devoted to women's issues and creating change from a distinctly Midwest perspective. I'm Martha Kovach, sociologist, producer, and your host. I'm here today with my co-host, Doug Jones. The 2018 midterms promise to be a game changer for Congress and ultimately for the presidency and our democratic process. One message in this campaign season has become abundantly clear well before Election Day. Women are a major political force as voters and as candidates. A record-breaking 185 women are running for Congress. Yet this gender surge is not equal across party lines. 78% of those women running for Congress are Democrats. We are thrilled to have a conversation today with one of those women. Susan Moran Palmer is running to represent Ohio's 16th Congressional District. Susan, thank you for speaking with us today. We're really grateful and really pleased to see you. You are busy, busy, busy campaigning full-time now for the Ohio 16th District. You've never before held a public office or run a campaign, and we should note that neither has your opponent. Have you always had a political itch that needed to be scratched? Well, first off, thank you for having me, Marty. It's very kind of you for the invitation. I have not had a political itch. For me, this is not a power trip. Uh, It was the time in our history. It was the candidates that were in front of us that I found completely unacceptable. You know, for me, uh, the presidential administration is difficult for me to accept. And then to bring someone from outside the district whose primary experiences that a football player who hasn't lived here for 11 years. For me personally, as a voter, I found that insulting. And then on top of that, as a professional woman, it was just salt on the wound on top of this administration. It just... And here you were speaking specifically of your opponent, Anthony Gonzalez. Yes. And I'm in a yeah. split marriage. My husband's Republican and I'm a Dem. Uh, this was okay. his first Democratic primary in his 60 years. Okay. We, we were uh, in our pre-production meeting, we were talking about, you know, wondering, has politics, how long has politics been part of your consciousness? I mean, do, do you remember your father going to Democratic Party meetings or do, do you remember a, any kind of political awareness when you were younger? I grew up in the Youngstown area, so it's a heavy labor town. Yeah. And again, I was raised in the 70s and 80s, so we all kind of went through the gutting of the steel industries in Youngstown, and everyone awakened to politics. Everybody knew what was going on from middle school up. Because because it was your life. It affected us. Every single thing affected us. I had a 24% 24 unemployment rate the year I graduated. So, I mean, that makes it effervescent in your life, you know, and I was the first generation that had run into that. You know, my grandfather's generation, my dad's generation, everybody had jobs. Mm -hmm. So we were that first generation out trying to figure out, okay, how do I climb that ladder? You know, do I have to leave Youngstown? How am I going to do it? So it was 
that climbing up process that I look now and I don't think that ladder is even there anymore. I don't think a kid today could follow me the way I came out of Youngstown from other areas of the state or country that are still depressed with job loss or income loss. And that's, uh, that's not just Youngstown. I mean, that experience speaks to most parts of the state of Ohio, as well as the Midwest. That's always depended either on farming or on a manufacturing economy. And all of a sudden, we couldn't count on those jobs being there anymore, and especially the jobs where you could raise a family on your paycheck, maybe send a couple kids to college, uh, own a, your own home, and and have feel some sort of safety net underneath you. And those those days are long gone. Well, and and it is it is truly the and I I really hate the term rust belt. I find it mm-hmm. insulting from end to end mm-hmm. you know we are the mid the manufacturing base of our country is in the midwest um and we've made these this isn't happenstance <clears throat> certainly a lot of it was globalization that we've lost a lot of our manufacturing base but there was infrastructure changes we could make as a country that even back in the youngstown days they said no you know mm-hmm. whether it was updating the steel mills to a more current technology with the government helping or bringing in technologies to make electricity cheaper, which is very important in in steel or aluminum manufacturing. High cost electricity raises the cost and makes us less competitive. You know, those are infrastructure changes we chose not to make because we didn't want to spend the money. And now it's coming back to bite us. To say nothing of it's still controversial to want to place safe bridges and filling potholes in as an infrastructure priority, let alone at the level that you're talking about that really boosts the the entire economy. Well, and you know, and potholes and bridges are more maintenance, but true infrastructural investment can absolutely have a targeted economic goal, and it should. At least in the beginning, those infrastructure projects should absolutely be targeted, whether it's a hydroelectric dam on the Cheat River in West Virginia. You know, there's no way West Virginia could afford that on their own. They need federal help to make that possible. And then you're moving people from coal jobs to electrical jobs. You know, building that dam could take seven or eight years. So and it gets them cheap electricity, which will attract manufacturing. So, I mean, it's part of the process, and we've been ignoring it, moving towards that low-tax, low-service state, and it's really costing the Midwest. Low-tax, low-service, short-term business concerns, looking at quarterly profits. Yeah, it, it it's exactly what a problem is when you look at making long-term physical infrastructure investments. Agreed. And, and you know, I, I don't just come out of healthcare. I was on the, the industry side of healthcare as well, so the business side. Mm-hmm. And we do work on five and 10 year plans, but I do think politically we've looked very short term. Very much, if it's not a 12 month, it's till the next election. We're just not looking out. I mean, Governor Rhodes set up our community and state college system here in Ohio. This was a Republican. He looked back in the day and said, I need my people educated. No one's going to be more than 30 miles from a community right. college. Sure. And it has been gutted. You know, the, the formula they use to pay for college in Ohio has been gutted. We're not quite at 0% yet, but we've lost almost 50% of the funding for every single kid in the state. You know, from 78 to now, it's like a $1,000 increase. That's not because college costs have gone up. It's because we choose not to fund the education of our children. Sure. It's a policy choice, not happenstance. Well, and I'm, I'm wondering, just as you were saying, you couldn't grow up in Youngstown when you did not be aware of the political implications, at least, of the shifting economy and people's feeling insecure 
with their family's finances. But also given your long history in healthcare, what are the ways that you see healthcare as tied to politics and our policies around healthcare as well? Well, for me, it goes back almost close to 15 years now. When I was younger, you could not be a for-profit insurance company. All insurers and all hospitals were not for profit. So when you have that foundation, then the focus is on healthcare, right? right? We're not running a business here. Mm -hmm. We're treating people, we're keeping our doors open, we're expanding care and access in our community, which is a solid goal. That doesn't mean government run, but it means nonprofit run. And, and that is where we all started, and that's when there wasn't as much trouble in our healthcare system as you see now. I don't ever remember having this conversation as a teenager with my father. You know, about healthcare. Do you ever have this conversation? I, yeah, I was thinking about that the other day and thinking, I, I wish I had asked my mother every time she took us to the doctor or the dentist, how are you paying for this? And I don't remember it ever being an issue of discussion around the dinner table. You got sick and you went to the doctor. And it was as simple as that. I don't... Same I with don't, dental. Yeah, I mean, how often yeah. are you talking to a low-wage worker and they look up and you're looking at a 30-year-old with no front teeth? Yeah. They have no dental care. The service state that we've turned into with no increase in wages has increased, obviously, the low-wage workers in this country. 42% of all Americans make less than $15 an hour. That is a stunning number for the working population. And you see it a lot in Ohio. You know, we've had an increase in jobs. We're still behind the national average by almost a whole percentage point, but the wages are just right. gutted. And, you know, you hear the state legislature complaining about the Medicaid expansion. It costs so much. The focus should be, why do so many people qualify for these programs? Why are so many right. people working poor? So they're, they're talking about a symptom, not the problem. And in fact, right, most poor people who qualify for Medicaid are not unemployed. They're not so-called living on the dole, if I can use air quotes here. They're people who are working, and they're working hard. But wages have been so suppressed in this country and in this state, right? It's the increase of jobs hasn't transferred to making people economically secure. No, and, and even the increase in our, our GDP, you know, the growth in the country has not translated to increase in wages, and it does stump the economists. For me, a large part of it is is labor restriction. You know, my husband's a serial small business owner, and, you know, we've, we've worked and gone out of our way to make businesses very freewheeling in the United States. We think that's part of our entrepreneurial approach, and it, it's part of our growth, you know, both in small mm -hmm. business and large businesses. But when you look at the labor side, the change from when my dad worked to now, even, you know, if he was a teacher, you know, I have non-compete clauses in my last three contracts. It just moved up mm -hmm. to a year and a half, covered six subspecialties of medicine, and it goes on and on. And now these things have been pushed down to the low-wage workers. Cafeteria workers and colleges have non-compete clauses. Mm -hmm. What intellectual property does right. a cafeteria worker have? <laughs> right. I mean, it, right. it, it, the point is not to make it uh, about intellectual property. It's to stop them from moving so the wages don't grow. Right. And then you add in the mandatory arbitration clauses, which, again, I had in my last three contracts. So the number one cause for arbitration is back pay. It's not sexual harassment. It's back pay. So if they can make you force you to go to arbitration and make 25 cents for every dollar they owe you, they win. They'll do it every time. And right. now it's legal for every company in this country that isn't unionized to do it because of, of the decision. That came out right before Janus, and I thought it was far more important than the Janus one. Janus is important yeah. too, but affects a much smaller portion 
of our population working. The arbitration affects us all. I'd like us to return just a moment when we were talking about what made you decide to run. And you talked about the current political climate. Could you say a little more about that? And in particular, when you talk about it, could you talk about what you think is really at stake now? Well, you know, Jeff and I, my husband, looked in November to see who was running. A local gentleman who we had known for years Mm -hmm. on the Republican side, a nice guy, someone we've known for years, dropped out. That left for us two people on the Republican side we did not feel were qualified or acceptable in any way. And on the Democratic side at the time, there was grassroots candidates, great guys, but just not the bandwidth to raise the funds necessary to have a serious campaign. And unfortunately, that's the realities of the world around us. And we were both struck with, we both felt a need for appropriate representation in our community. The idea that out of 725,000 people, we can't find qualified candidates that are willing to step up because it's become so yellowed and so disparate for so many people. It's the last thing on earth they want to do is represent their congressional district. What a sad statement that is. And we discussed it, and I said, well, the kids are old enough. I could do this. I certainly have the experience and the expertise, and been in the district for 20 years. I've run a business here. I kind of spread my wings in this area, mm-hmm. and it makes sense for me to step up. You know, he didn't want to step away from his business, so I stepped up. So for me, it was it was a confluence of what was happening at a federal level. I do find the administration incredibly divisive. I find, I don't want to call it a hobby, but it's a focus. It's headlines, headlines, headlines. And, and that's just the president and his administration. That's the focus, is to constantly be on the front page. All, well, all, and, the, and the focus is on himself well, in the process. Was, right. Yeah. And in the meantime, I find the GOP is passing legislation that maybe even the president doesn't support, because often what he talked about isn't, you know, I'm going to come up with better, cheaper health care for you, and he hasn't, yet they're, they're going to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Well, that doesn't meet the rhetoric. It doesn't meet the conversation that he promised. He talked about taking care of the veterans, and that issue still has not been resolved because it costs money. So, you know, we borrowed $2 trillion from China for a tax cut. You know, I know we don't have a competitive tax code in the United States, but when I look at our problems, it wasn't even the top five. Most companies were sitting on trillions of dollars that they hadn't invested. Right. And his solution was to a problem that didn't exist. Well, it, it, we need to have a more competitive tax, sure. Right. Uh, but but their solution just kind of ran away from the problems, right? Right, right. I mean, you got to pay for it. I mean, yeah. you grow up in Youngstown, you pay for what you what you need, and and there's no difference there. They could have made some tough choices, and they simply were unwilling to do it because it was about re-election. I've got election coming up in 2018, so I'm not going to make any tough calls. Yeah, and, and satisfying and keeping the support of moneyed interests that will support his re-election. And unfortunately, I mean, it, it worked in their favor. They've gotten an right. enormous amount sure. of money, all from businesses. I've reached out to some businesses and been told we don't want to meet with you. They have no idea who's going to win. They don't even want to meet with a Democratic candidate. And I told the one guy on the phone, that's a dumb business. You have no idea what's going to happen. And yeah. you're going to slam the door in my face. That's just crazy. Without talking to you, no. without hearing what you stand for. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sitting here as a moderate businesswoman from the district. And you know, not everybody, like Wilbert was beautiful this morning. They were very friendly, told me all about their businesses, what concerns they have. It was a lovely meeting. They were great. And, and what a great business role model they are. Yeah. The primary 
we want to talk about that for a moment because that was <laughs> a different kind of primary and in some ways kind of a, a little bizarre. You were one of a slate of six candidates, which uh, kind of made for all the candidates difficult to know quite what to focus on when it's just, you know, the Republican primary had two major candidates and they went after each other, guns blazing, so to speak. It was not the case. You were in a field of six. Nobody in that field had held public office before. None of you was a household name, politically. Mm -hmm. And you were the only woman. Can you can you tell us about what that experience was like and and then how that you came out of that primary as as the only woman and by you know the the 11th of May there you were now the candidate it wasn't happenstance we actually had a physical strategy um we all lived in Cuyahoga County and I drive a lot for my former job it's pretty normal for me so we took the chance that most candidates wouldn't go south they wouldn't hit Wayne, they wouldn't hit Stark, they wouldn't hit Portage because mm -hmm. it's too far from home and they're going after work, and they would just not go to the meetings. Mm -hmm. So I had a southern strategy to hit those counties hard. So by the time we came uh, see, you know, to the primary, I, had, I don't even know how many times I'd been in Wayne County. It was probably 10 by then. Everybody knew me. Uh, so to pick up those southern areas and allow my family name and my husband and my business reputations in town kind of carry Cuyahoga County, that left Summit Medina. And I actually won every single county except for Medina by 20 votes. So it was a specific strategy. Now, Cuyahoga complained because you're not coming to our meetings. We haven't seen you when you won. Right. I get it. So I had to sit down and explain as soon as I won the primary that this wasn't, I'm not blowing anybody off. You weren't ignoring Cleveland. Yeah. <laughs> I was purposely doing a tactic that I thought would help me win because that is the objective of the game. But the strategy for winning a primary is a very different strategy than running for the election itself. It's it's like you you have to hit the ground running the day after the primary is over, but in a sense, you have to be a different candidate. In many ways, I am quite fortunate that uh, I stuck out as one of two moderates in the entire group. I didn't have to go super left in the primary mm -hmm. and then swing all the way back in the general election. I had no need to do that. I've had more than one person tell me I sound like a Republican on health care. You know, like that's a dig. <laughs> yeah. The pragmatism that I grew up with, the, the basic common sense I grew up with, it, it helps me move forward. I really am still a, the moderate candidate I was in the primary. Now on the Republican side, they really swung hard right. You know, yes. I believe in the wall, women have no right to choose third one oh and repeal of Obamacare you know so they had to go that far right and now trying to swing back from that is a really hard swing and they were out competing they were I mean they were competing with each other to see who could in a sense outright each other it, but again refusing all debates right so I think everyone has a right, right to kick the tires and I went through a lot of debates and lots of kicking and that's part of the democracy you are supposed to be able to stand up for your arguments Will your opponent debate you now? We just got notification from the League of Women Voters of Cuyahoga County that he refused the debate that they were sponsoring and would give no alternate dates. Uh, City Club is now asking. I've already accepted City Club. I haven't heard back yet on City Club. Do you anticipate, uh, in, in Ohio, 
Republican candidates certainly come with a reputation and history. I'm not implying it's rumor. There is truth to the fact that Republicans in Ohio will not debate their Democratic opponents. Well, and and to me, I mean, the difference between an incumbent not debating, I mean, they're strategizing, right? And they they, they have a record to stand on. And they have a record to stand on. The idea that someone who's never run for office won't even come out is just insulting again it's just insulting to your voters to say i can't stand in front of you and hold my own i refuse so what are they running away from from what i've heard i've I've met tony he's a nice young man he is a genuinely polite nice young man Uh, you're not going to not live in an area for 11 years and know what's going on in the area if you move me to california i'm pretty adapt i'm pretty well read i'm not going to know what your local issues are no yeah. matter how hard i try in a one-year period i'm not going to get it all i'm and just he, not and he has been gone for 11 years that's correct and he's never lived in this particular district until he moved into file to run for congress so and even with the gerrymandering it wasn't the old district he wasn't in that district either so it, it's it's understanding your district and what the problems are because you know it's such a disparate area you know, all sure. over the area, there's a lot of very different issues going on in these communities. And I've had the good fortune over the years to work with every single hospital in the district. There's not one community I haven't already been in and worked in for years. So I know it forwards and backwards. And now each of them has their own issues or complications or problems or things that are going great for them. You know, I Wayne County has incredible uh, local economic planning. I think they've done a phenomenal job with the regional economic growth plans. I mean, it, they've been voted nationally incredibly impressive, and sure. I couldn't agree more. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that was the model that so many other parts of the country are now trying to adopt, you know, to pick a field you want to be. You know, they grow right. the food, they process the food. It was just brilliant at its time. Yeah, yeah great. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in a moment with Susan Moran Palmer. What they tell us, how they compel us. At- like to wonder what is true in the speeches the ignorant preaches that no one is like to be suggestions or ideas for future episodes, email us at voices at heartlandwoman.com. And welcome back. We're here with Susan Moran Palmer. And again, Susan, we're really delighted to talk with you. Um, We wanted to talk for a minute about you running as Obviously, you're not running as a woman candidate. You are a woman who happens to be running for the United States Congress. Yeah, and as we were framing questions, it occurred to me that some of the questions for you were unique to the fact that you're a female. We would not ask a male candidate that uh, or those kinds of questions. Uh, we'll ask you those questions, but I'm curious, um, kind of in an overarching way, do you, what do you perceive some of the challenges there is for a female uh, to run for the U.S. Congress. There's certainly preconceived notions, and we all have them. Nobody is without their prejudices. Uh, I had one gentleman ask me what kind of child care I was going to have. 
if I went to Congress. Yeah. And I said, did you hear the one about Bill Gates and his nanny? And he said, no. I said, that's because no one asked Bill Gates about his child care. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> and everybody laughed and he smiled. I said, not to upset you. I said, you know, I, I've been working all my life and, and my husband's a very hands-on father. And we've been doing this juggle for years. Just kind of led on to it with a little humor. So, And I've been in a male-dominated profession for years and years and years. So I'm used to walking in and being the only woman in the room. And you learn to check the ego and the looks and just get the work done. Have you in encountered any real problems? No. You know, I, and I've talked to other candidates across the United States that have had uh, physical threats. Yeah, yes. That's yes. kind of what I'm thinking. I've had zero. Nothing. I love my district. What, nothing. Even detractors, the worst thing I've been called is a socialist. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, not e and not even socialist bimbo or anything derogatory sexually. Right. It's just been socialist. So uh, I love my district. They're good people. Even people who disagree with me are not rude. Well, chalk one up for Midwest politics Absolutely. There. You've touched on something that rarely gets discussed, and I'd like for us to address it here, which is politics and motherhood. Uh, and I'm, I'm really struck that to Doug's question about gender, for you that immediately meant mothering. I've heard you tell a story, and I'm wondering if you can repeat it, of a discussion you had with your son. You have three sons. I do. Uh, and they are what ages? Again, I know 13, they're 15, and 17. Okay. And the story, I don't want to tell it here. I just want to remind you, it was a story about a discussion you had with your son about running for the U.S. Congress. Yes, I remember. I was talking to my youngest. Seemingly out of, out of real concern for you, he, he said, Mom... Why are you running? What's this about? I told him Congress is broken and mom needs to go fix it. And my country needs me to do that. And I know it's difficult on you, but you need mom's skills in Washington and they need me to fix it. And this is what I do. And, and he, he said, why does it have to be you? Right, right. Yeah. Which seemed to express concern for his mom. Yes. Uh, hopefully not just for himself as a 13-year-old as a well, who wants his mom to drive him everywhere. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. But certainly 13 is quite old enough to look at the news every now and then and see what candidates and what politicians, not only what they're dishing out, but what they have to deal with. Yeah, and I did not take my children with most of my campaign events. I often have people say, bring the kids. You know, the mom thing sells well. And, and hmm. you know, with, with we are in a point in our history where I have to be careful with that. You know, I took my oldest to the March for Our Lives mm -hmm. events. Uh, he and I went to one in Canton and one in Medina. And here in Medina, they had a gentleman show up with an assault wife and, and march with all the moms with their strollers and stuff around. And there was two police officers there, but they have two sidearms. Right, right. I wonder which he was threatened more by the... Uh... Women marching or the children marching? <laughs> the strollers, probably. Oh, the strollers, right. <laughs> now, he didn't do anything. No. But had he, you know, I, I was trying to get my son to go back in the car, and he wouldn't leave me. So. Uh, oh. Well, I would suggest he did do something. I, I He was making a statement. He was standing there, and his purpose was to threaten everyone. It's meant to be intimidating, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the point of it, as, yeah. as is a lot of the stuff. I mean, open carry is not a need. It, oh, no. it is it is yeah. an intimidation. Uh, my dad calls it, it adds five inches to someone's height. Uh, <laughs> among other things. Yeah. 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 And yeah, and the, and I think Doug's point that, that that intimidation and trying to make a, a opponent 
fearful mm-hmm. is in fact an action and and I think a terrifying action that that that's considered normal that that's considered acceptable now well I definitely think in the presidential race it was evident yes. you know both in the primary for the Republican side oh, and yeah. and certainly in the general election I obviously didn't experience, honestly, I haven't experienced it in either primary or the general election, but I also don't think I fit the mold. Bring it. <laughs> you want yeah. to go toe-to-toe, then you better be able to stand up, because I can guarantee you I can't. So, and I think that attitude and where I grew up comes through in almost everything I do. How do you think that motherhood has shaped your politics? It, it certainly shapes how I perceive everything because it's no longer just through my lens. Right. It's also through their lens. You know, and when we talk about student debt with the kids, you know, because my oldest is doing the college rounds right okay. now. Okay, yeah. So that's something yeah. I didn't look at prior to having children. It was not a concern to me. And some of these prices are just staggering. Oh, yes. I mean, we've had the college uh, 529 since birth, you know, and we've, okay. we've been very good with that through the years, but I've told every one of them. Okay, you do not fall in love with a college campus. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Because of the trees planted on the quad. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care yeah. if you love the football team or not. I really don't care. You know, we're going to get you accepted to places you find acceptable. We're going to see what their offers are coming in. And we're going to make a financial decision about your education. So that is something I would not have uh, mm-hmm. delved into a, a, without the motherhood thing. Mm-hmm. And certainly the climate change, you know, there's a lawsuit out in California where young people sued uh, the right. federal government for right. not because it is their lives that are at risk. Right. And I mean, I think the younger generation can do that in several areas. I mean, if you live down on the southern half of our state up against the river, you know, where they have several coal-powered coal plants, you know, the soot is, is increasing asthma dramatically uh, in the coal-powered plants. I, I know it's their livelihood for many, but it is an asthmatic risk, uh, that very serious risk that caused lots of deaths in this country. So I think that thought line if it continues through the courts mm-hmm. it could be used several times in many different ways and and we had this discussion on climate change with my sons i said i don't think i really don't think the republicans are in any way stupid on the subject i don't this is reminiscent to me of the tobacco argument absolutely you know mm-hmm. it was that whole smoking argument again smoking's mm-hmm. not bad for you it doesn't yeah. cause lung cancer and they knew it did then they weren't mm-hmm. stupid they're were protecting the industries in their states right. uh, to the point of a public health risk and we're in the exact same spot with climate change identical spot with climate change you know where they know it's real it they're protecting industries and if the public health goes bad well that's the cost of doing business well, except with climate change to protect your children from the effects. You can't ground them for a weekend because you found a, an open pack of cigarettes in the back pocket of their jeans. It's much as bigger a, than that. Right. right, and as a parent, you have so much less control over the consequences of those profit decisions on your uh... and And for right now, it's not a single issue vote for most people. There are a lot of people that 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 the, how you're treating mm-hmm. the environment is their single issue, but I think it's too small of a percent of the population right now uh, that that's not their single issue vote. Hopefully we don't have to be catastrophic before we get to that level. Florida, it's a very large issue because Miami's drowning. <laughs> they mm-hmm. keep raising sidewalks mm-hmm. on the roads right, because right. they're drowning in high water levels. So some states becoming more and more of an issue. Oklahoma, the earthquakes we've had in the eastern half up by where I live, Helen Hubbard, Youngstown are where I grew up. Um, you know, from the fracking. So things are, are 
some states are bringing issues to the forefront on this because it's it's causing catastrophic damage. So, well, I th I think the phrase uh, climate change, if you look at our politics, is being very tribal. That if somebody says you're a climate changer and you, they point at you, it may tend to put you in a certain category in people's minds. Uh, but as a member of Congress, you can talk about pollution. And shall we have more pollution? Shall we have less pollution? That's less threatening, and that way you actually address the problems. Well, but it wasn't always that way. When I was in a... No, no, it was it a, no, wasn't. not at all. I mean, when I was in, I think it was middle school, do you remember the ozone layer thing with the hairspray? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and at that time, I remember doing a report on Lincoln Chaffee, who was a Republican. Yes, he um, was. And he was in absolute battle. Uh, he's a conservationist. Sure. And he, he fought it tooth and nail, and we had that wrapped up in five years. They had legislation. They banned the hydrofluorocarbons. Absolutely. I mean, right. they were on right. top of it. And it was bipartisan, but it was led by a Republican in my lifetime. Sure. So, I mean, this is something newer, and I think it really is tied to industry donations. And we, we just have to be very careful. We're becoming a, a donor democracy where that's more important than just about anything. And then we're working into the cronyism where you're choosing people for positions based on what you can give and take with that person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's incredibly dangerous for our country. And isn't it also, I, I really appreciate your talking about the conservative leading the battle against the declining ozone layer. We, and I remember now that it's coming back to me, the jokes we would make about the hole in the ozone. Yes. I think part of what's going on there is also the, the change, a shift in what we define and what we see philosophically as a conservative standpoint, right? And, and again, many, many conservatives in this country had been against the election of Donald Trump and continue to be because he doesn't represent true conservation principles. Um, and in some ways you've described yourself as, as conservative in many ways. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that use of the term. Well, I do, I do see a lot of conservative people that push away from the president, you know, the never Trumper, I hate to give them that advertisement, but, yeah. um, you know, and it's not just, they're not just opposing the president, they're opposing the policies, right? The, the borrowing of money to pay for a tax cut, the expansion of government, the mm -hmm. expansion of the debt, and on and on and on. Those are, you know, conservative values. And that's what the Republican Party stood for in my lifetime. That is what I see. Now, the loss of them for conservationism is something that I've seen uh, since my children were born in the last 20 years or so, that they've kind of pulled away from environmental concerns over that time period. And I personally, I, I blame gerrymandering on a large part of it. It doesn't make a difference if you are stacked blue or stacked red. If you're stacked, it's bad. You know, you don't, sure. everyone should be fighting for that five or six points to win their election. Yeah. That's how we have normal policy and moderation moving forward. But if you're never, if you're winning by 30 points, you don't care what anybody thinks. And it also cuts democracy off at the knees. I think it leads to, a to great the tribalism. Extent. You're either I, in this camp or that yeah. camp. Yeah. And depending on the camp yeah. you're in, you support every, every policy that the people at the top who are getting the money support. It doesn't matter how crazy they are. It's our tribe's policy, so we're going to support it. 
Well, and I certainly you've seen that in today's political climate, you know, where you either support these policies or I'm going to badmouth you, make sure you don't get elected right, or out of your right, primary. Right. Uh, and it's very much the bully pulpit to the extreme. And that's unfortunate because I think people want a wider choice range. I think people want not that narrow, regardless of party. I think they want a wider range yeah, to the, find that common ground. And the kind of political language that we hear today prevents discussion of how to solve a problem. It's one position or another position. And almost always a solution to a problem is neither solution. Because solutions aren't as dualistic as, uh, right. as our rhetoric Absolutely. is. Let alone, I mean, our system with the two-party system, we understand a kind of dualism is built into it, but the rhetoric has become, and again, I, I I sort of want to get away from the word tribalism into something that's even more powerful than that. And I don't know what that word is because we are so polarized in ways that uh, certainly our parents didn't experience. Well, now, because compromise means you don't get reelected. Because, again, sure. you're, leading, you're leading 30 points in some district left or some districts right. So if you compromise on something in either direction for either party, then sure. you're bad. But in yeah. fact, the def- the very definition of being a politician and why it's a skill is that you know how to compromise. You know how, and leadership means bringing everybody together and trying to figure out not where are we differing, but where where are we alike. Well, and I, I give the honestly, I give a lot of the female representation, both in the House and the Senate, they're the compromisers. You know, it's Patty Murray locked in a room right. figuring out the budget stuff or Susan Collins. You know, I, there just seems to be less ego with the female politicians. They're not so worried about their camera time and they get it done. I remember uh, seeing journalist Cokie Roberts talking about that this is what she thought mothers bring to politics is the ability to go, okay, everybody in the room, calm down. <laughs> You sit over there, you sit over there, and let's all breathe for a minute, and okay, now what are you upset about, and how can we together deal with that in a way that everybody wins? And certainly when I watched, um, well, particularly one presidential debate of the last election, where suddenly I was astonished that I'm living in a country where there are men actually discussing their penis size and <laughs> and thinking are you kidding me and i and i thought i, I mean I, I turned to someone and said we need more nuns with rulers here <laughs> bring out the nuns with the you know because i felt like okay some ultimate mom figure has got to come in and put them in the naughty corner for a moment and take a time out. The fact that we were discussing the position of the most powerful person on the planet and the future of our country and the future of this planet, and here we are, all of them wanting to compare hand size, was just astonishing to me, and I, and I felt like we've We've now hit the low point. I'm not sure that I was right then. Uh, unfortunately, we've discovered we can go even lower. It could but, go lower. Yeah they, yeah, they felt that that's what they had to assert about right. themselves to stand out in the crowd. I, I want to ask you, there are media narratives, 
They talk about a blue wave. They talk about a progressive wave. They talk about a pink wave. Are you part of a wave? I don't. Are you, are I you don't, a waver? I don't ever say that <laughs> word or any of those phrases ever. Well, let me say whatever you call it. Uh, you you reference Susan Collins. Mm-hmm. There are more women running for office now than I think ever before. This means that sitting around the table, there will be different voices. What about that? Uh, what do you think the impact of the different voices could be on the state of our politics today? Well, I think a couple of things. I think also, and uh, we all lived this going through professional womanhood. You know, when professional women first came out, they dressed like guys. Remember the ties and stuff and that whole mm-hmm. phase we went through? Sure. And then it was kind of bad being a mom. So the women that were moved up the ladder were women that chose not to have a family. Oh, yeah. Okay? And we all went through that phase, and then it became mm-hmm. okay to have children. And now we're kind of taking that phase on in politics. You know, we had many female politicians that chose not to have families, and, and those are the ones that went into politics. It was such uh, ingrained within our culture. And now, not only have a lot of women running, you have a lot of moms running who are willing to, you know, Christy Childrand certainly has young children, but that was something that was almost for you know verboten to do as a politician well, you, you is to have disqualified children from public service. immediately yeah. immediately um so that's that's going to bring out just a whole other range of conversations around that table right i mean you have people that are seeing their children only on weekends if they are depending on where they are in the power they might be mm-hmm. gone every weekend uh so i mean it's going to change the conversations it will mm-hmm. mellow some conversations and it will excite some conversations imagine the conversation on women's health where they had nothing but men in the room yes <laughs> okay that's right now, that's such right. high comedy i can't now, believe it actually imagine happened. 20 people were half or female and expect the differences right. in that conversation yeah right. even even republican and democratic women yeah, you know right. i mean there's going to be some center ground with both of those groups of women uh that the guys are going to go no way you know whether it's long-term birth control that both a pro-life and pro-choice woman can absolutely mm-hmm. promote accept mm-hmm. and promote and the guys you might say, oh, I don't think I should pay for that. We didn't ask you. <laughs> you so, know, so in many right. cases, right. there might actually be people at the table talking about topics who know what they're talking about. Yes, yes. What a, con- what a concept, you know. And in fact, the research does show that when you have, the more women you have in those political leadership positions, whether they're Republican women or Democratic women, doesn't matter that the issues that are affecting families and children and actual human beings lives are brought to the table and brought to the table in a way where everybody understands they have to compromise something in order to get the the bigger package well, they, have, good. they have to find a solution rather than right. just dig their heels in more deeply right well, and your electorate's got to reward you for that. You know, with Ohio, we're going to be yeah. ungerrymandered right. <laughs> either in 2020 through the courts or yeah. 2022 through issue one that we just passed. So what do you what do you think that women who are mothers, particularly of young children? And you talked about now that your children are teenagers, you feel more comfortable being able to undergo the rigors of a campaign as well as being a member of Congress, but the difficulties for, particularly for women of young children, we just saw Patty Duckworth, you know, be the, be the first woman and she had to get, you know, nearly a papal dispensation in order to bring her infant to the floor of 
the U.S. Senate, and I, she she made a joke about how she wasn't sure that the dress code of the Senate uh, permitted a onesie uh, to appear, <laughs> but and and quipped that she had purchased a, an an infant size suit for her for her baby to wear if that was necessary. But that's been within the last six months. Yes. And I'm wondering, as, as Doug is talking about what those voices, those more diverse voices bring to the table. Well, what do a you lot see of young as, mothers running this time. Yeah, and what do you see as the, the, what do young mothers bring to the table in the discussion? Again, so different voice, different perspective. Mm-hmm. So right. when you have three children under five, your perspective is the cost of childcare, right? You know, it's more than a house payment for my niece, for her two daughters. You know, until they started school, it's more than her house payment. Can is housing affordable where I'm at? Do we both have to work? And with childcare and housing, can we survive in given cities? So there's just the different things you find at different ages or different perspectives. And I'm thrilled with the younger set running. I really, really am. I think we need more voices from different perspectives. It can't just be all old white people. It just can't, or old, old white males. Old it's got to have yeah. lots of different perspectives to come up with a solution that helps the entire population. And can I throw in the old white men, also wealthy old white men, who have never had to think about things like child care that challenges the house payment. Or the cost of health care. Or the cost, or the cost of sending of, your kids to college. Or the cost of education, those. yeah. All of those well, those plain old middle class concerns that that are at the heart of this country. Well, and, and you know, when we started doing all this, when our country started, cabinet makers, barrel makers, doctors, lawyers, right. it was a mix of professions. And now we have our one and two professions in Congress right now are previous politicians mm-hmm. and lawyers. That's it. That's one and two. So we are not getting those different perspectives, and it's not a good service to our country it's not a good service to our citizens to have those limited perspectives right. Right. and then you have the i mean with the health care my sister does cartoons for my facebook page and she has one where it shows congress in a boat where it says congress health care subsidies you know with no deductibles no anything and then the american population drowning in the ocean because we don't have those life preservers we don't have that kind of help And on that note, we're going to take a break and try very hard to not make shark jokes. (laughs) And we'll be back. What they tell us, how they compel us. I know what it's like to wonder what is true. In the speeches, the ignorant preachers. Like to be resented in the brackish left to question what I saw. If you like what you hear, please tell well everybody about us. For more information, links, and other great stuff, check out our website www.heartlandwoman.com. And we're back with Susan Moran Palmer, the Democratic candidate for the U.S. House of Representatives from the 16th District in Ohio. Susan, we talked about how you ran in a primary, one of six people. Now you're running in the general election. Uh, when you do this, how do you pay for it? Uh, what 
you know, the, 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 uh, if you look at members of Congress, they tend to be millionaires, mm-hmm. quite literally. Uh, I don't think you are. At least I haven't heard anyone describe you as such. <laughs> how does this work? How do you make it? How do you get the money? How do you, what makes it work? It, it's an archaic system. Uh, you make phone calls to people that have been technically donors for the Democratic Party. You start within your state, and then you expand from there as your money grows. And it's very much a kill-what-you-eat scenario hmm. until you get to a certain level. So, you know, Emily's list used to be early money mm-hmm. helps things grow, right? Yes. The whole yeast thing, not not so much anymore. You know, so uh, both the DCCC and Emily's list require a certain amount to be raised locally before they'll even step into the ring. So as, as a candidate that didn't know they were going to run a year in advance, you know, there is a much more shortened timeline sure. for those conversations and the phone calls and all that kind of stuff. So I've gone to more uh, unusual funding sources like Pantsuit Nation, which is a, okay. a group yes. of a million women that allow you to post and then they come look at you and you can bring up money that way. There's a tech resistance group, a few of them actually that don't care for how their larger tech companies interwork with the current administration. So they're funding different candidates in different ways. Uh, so there's a few different groups that I'm looking at for kind of unusual funding on top of the regular funding, but it is not unusual for me to be on the phone about nine hours a day. Nine hours a day. Yes. That's running for office in the United States of America today. Well, as a Democrat, as a Democrat. it is. As a Democrat. Right? Because, you know, my average my average donation is between two and $300. You know, and if I'm a football player and I can go to the football pack and have a drink with 50 football players at 5000 a pop, could you, for our listeners who are not uh, from Ohio, can you be a little more specific about what, what you're referring to there? Um, my opponent played for the NFL. So the NFL has their own pack, and packs are allowed to give $5,000 donations, and each individual can give, depending on when you're asked, each individual can give 5400 for an entire election cycle so both primary and general election so if you have a room full of professional athletes the pack can give 5,000 and each person can give 5,400 from primary through the end of the election so that's one room with 50 people and an enormous amount of money yeah and and the the football ties go back further than the NFL to when he was a player for the Ohio State Buckeyes correct well and Ignatius as well Mm-hmm. So for the Catholic schools in Cleveland, uh, it goes pretty far back. So, it, you know, and women, when they hear the um, experience, you get a full eye roll as far as why is that an experience for Congress? This is not a huddle. This is not what, this is not what Congress <laughs> does. Okay. Sure. But men are a little more receptive to it, honestly. They see value in professional sports. They see value in that particular experience. It's a toughness that comes across to them. So I have to broach it much differently when I talk to men versus women. And there certainly is a, that element of cronyism you were talking about before. I mean, your, your opponent out of the gate in the primaries outfunded everybody, both on the Republican side and the Democratic side, at least tenfold. Well, his, his dad's a millionaire, and he opened up a pack for his son that they funded with the company money. And then the whole family, I don't remember how many Gonzaleses gave, but it was almost $300,000 just from family. My family loves me. <laughs> and just as a, much. There's lots of Irish Catholic in my family, but we don't have 300000 to pull together. Um, and then 
the number one employer contributor for my opponent is also Farragon, the, the family's company. And, you know, they broke the Teamsters Union when the Teamsters tried to organize there in 1993. And they've out, they've shipped out every single job outside the state after they lost that National Labor Relations Board judgment against them when they busted mm-hmm. the union in 93, and then they appealed it in federal court, and then they built plants in Michigan, which is right to work, Kentucky, which is right to work, and Mississippi, which was right to work. So, you know, all their all expansions right. they've had, all the money that he depends on uh, to fund his campaign is pretty much made for outside the state. And that financial disparity is really something that women candidates, it's not unique to women candidates by any means, but it's something that pretty much every woman candidate has to deal with. And and even Christina Hagen, who ran against Tony in the primary, when people give, they give less to women. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just the way it is. So women have to fundraise at, at a much different expansive, expansive level. And most givers are men. It's gotten better in this primary in general more than ever women are giving but still in much smaller donations but finally they're getting engaged in opening their wallets it was just not something typical it's a power thing and men were comfortable making a donation without checking with their wife but the reverse is not true right and as well as women don't have the financial resources themselves they're happy to dig into their pockets but all that may come out of that is fifty dollars yeah you know and the degree to which it's a power thing that just sounds like men (laughs) okay i'm glad you said that if it's a governing thing well that's different governing is supposed to be focused on something other than power governing is supposed to be focused on what issue what, what problems do we need to solve what things do we need to make better well it's supposed to be knowledge and competence right Right. That's right. the idea. Right. Mm-hmm. But when it gets to a point where you're shopping in a catalog for a congressional district that you want to live in, that you want to run in, huh. yeah. that's a very large problem. Yeah. And it's become effervescent. I mean, the Citizen United that says money equals speech means the only way we're going to control this is by saying candidates can only ha- collect this much money. I mean, we then have to finite say, and they're doing it on some state levels, Tallahassee's yeah. done it, where you can only accept this much money, you can only do this much, and they just kind of box in the candidates. And I think that's the next place we need to go. It's a disgusting thing for every voter. No voter is happy about it. No voter. I don't care what right. party you're in, nobody right. likes it. But politically, one party really likes all the money because they think it wins them elections. This election, we absolutely must show them that it doesn't win elections. We have to so that we can make it go away. Because it, it's the thing that I hear across the board from independents, Republicans, Democrats. It doesn't make any difference. It's ruining our political system. So if you don't have tens of millions of dollars to influence elections, you can get up and go out and vote. Absolutely. I mean, you look at the people that are winning, that are unseating people 10 times, even on the primaries, mm-hmm. you know, 10 times what they've raised. I mean, it's striking, both in the Florida governor's race, uh, the New York congressional race, and now the Boston race. You know, these are people right. that were blown out of the water 10, 12 times difference in fundraising abilities, and they're winning. So I think it's it's not just a, a democratic wave, if you will. I think it's people speaking up and saying, that's enough of this money thing. I'm going to vote for who's going to make a difference in my life. You sound very optimistic about things. 
I think it's a winnable, it's the only open seat in the state of Ohio without an incumbent. It's a really yep. uphill battle when you've got somebody who's been there for 10, 12 years yep. to get them out of office. They've got the name recognition, they've got the prior experience, they've got a record they're running on. It's much, much harder. I'm running against a 33-year-old football player. There's got to be some wiggle room here. There, there's got to be people that look at that and say, you got to be kidding me, you know? I mean, and not living in the state for so long, there is, I mean, there is receptive people out there. But isn't one of the the difficulties, again, when you're looking at gerrymandered districts, as the 16th district is, it's a very strange, demographically, uh, it's it's a strange playing field for you. Uh, it's very rural in some parts. It's very urban in other parts. That particular dis- district is very white demographically. Mm-hmm. It's and you spend a lot of time driving. <laughs> I I was thinking earlier about well that's one thing motherhood suits you well <laughs> to prepare you for being a candidate is you're always driving. <laughs> right? Well, and, and the gerrymander of the district is coming back to bite them now because you have, when you look at the counties, Cuyahoga, Summit, Medina, Portage, everyone but Wayne, it's just the bedroom communities that pick the wealthier, successful communities all the way down intentionally, right? Sure. It used to constantly be Republicans. If you were well off, you're professionally successful, they were more often Republican than Democrat. But and better educated. And better educated. <laughs> and that used to go with the Republican Party. Not so much anymore. Okay? So I have my bedroom communities. We are the third wealthiest district in the entire state. We are above average uh, college education rate for the state. And these bedroom communities are pushing away on all this. They don't like the current administration. They don't like the tone. Even sure. if they're getting some of the tax relief, they don't like where we are as a country. So suddenly you have these bedroom communities that are now in play. The college educated saying, yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to vote for this party. I, I, this is nuts. Where we are is nuts. One gentleman said it was like uh, he said, good government should be an operating system on a computer. It just works in the background where you run your life and your right. business. He goes, I am so sick of this in my face every day. It is so yeah. obnoxious. He's embarrassed to travel overseas for work. I'm going overseas and I anticipate that. And he he has absolutely experienced yeah. that. I know I'll have to have something to say to defend myself about the fact that I'm an American and look <laughs> who we have as president. Well, and, and then Wayne, I, you know, even though I know they're still a very conservative county, they're getting hit so hard. I mean, it, you know, the one farmer explained it. It's not just the tariffs. You know, the Chinese will order soybeans on Monday. The president tweets something negative about China Tuesday. It drops 8%. Right. They cancel order on mm-hmm. Monday and reorder on Wednesday. I mean, they're getting killed. And I know they may not vote for me, but, man, it pulls at my heartstrings. These are third and fourth generation farms. It just kills me how they're getting jerked around. You should not use someone's livelihood as leverage. It's awful. And if you're trying to run a business, you need to hire people. Well, you need people with certain skills. They need training. Those are those are things that aren't there. That's essentially kind of an infrastructure in education and training investment that we have not made and been proud of it. Well, and Governor Rhodes set it up so we would have the infrastructure, yeah. Right? Yeah. right? I mean, he put it out right. there for a reason. He foresaw where the country was going. I mean, you know, it may have been an old manufacturing phase, like when the textiles were going away or whatever, that inspired him to start sure. dealing with this at an early generation. Um, and, and again, the infrastructure investment really can make a huge economic impact in the middle part of this country. And there's no reason why we aren't spending 
the money in the parts of the country that are depressed. I mean, there is no reason why it has to always go to the wealthiest states. Everyone wants the middle part of the country to do better. Everyone does. Everyone benefits when it does. Absolutely. 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 So, I mean, but it, it costs money. These things don't come out of nowhere. I mean, if we're going to gut every education system and just give it back as a tax break to businesses, sooner or later, you, you've gutted everything. You know, it started out in college and now it's K through 12. I can't even tell you how many school districts have no busing. I, I can't even tell you. I mean, Westlake, where I live, we have no busing for the high school because they've gutted funding so much. And now I've got levy after levy after levy all across the district. Safety levy, mental health levy, um, fire safety, sure. school levy, operating. I mean, it just keeps going. Libraries. Because now the state is holding all the money in Columbus, and they're not sending it out to the local municipalities, and they just keep dumping on the property tax. And then what happened at the federal level? They capped your property tax that you can deduct. Sure. Yeah. So it just, just keeps coming out of the middle class pocket over and over again. You know, we as a population just, we have to see this for what it is and stop it. Because there's a big difference between those things that affect kind of everybody. Oh, yeah. And those things that affect narrow and special interests who may have enormous resources. And they can influence policy more than everyone Money can influence policy, but everyone voting. That's the one thing I liked about 2016. It pulled a lot of people out who hadn't voted in a while, and I think that's great. Yeah. I may not agree with who they voted for, but I don't care. I want them to keep screaming, and I want them to keep voting. Absolutely. I think also for people to recognize that part of the bargain of a democracy is you have a responsibility to vote. Yeah. It really isn't your choice. If you want a democracy to work... You have to participate. That's why we call it that. <laughs> I mean, a participatory democracy means, at the very least, you've got to vote. Well, that was the challenge coming out of the Constitutional Convention. You know, the famous quote, right. Ben Franklin leaves the building, and a woman asks him, what kind of government have you given us? Have you made us? He said, well, it's a republic, if you can keep it. Yes, you have to participate. You have to be an intelligent participant you have to be active in it and it doesn't mean you have to run for office necessarily uh, but you do have to vote be informed and vote and I, I couldn't agree more and actually with Ohio with the loosening of the um, absentee ballots there's really no excuse for anybody not to vote this is a first election cycle that I actually voted in person because people are taking pictures of me but I normally sure. sit down with my absentee ballot and my computer and what I don't know I look up yeah. And there's no excuse in Ohio anymore since you don't have a reason to absentee ballot for you not voting. You know, get your absentee ballot and vote. We continue to see, though, the move to suppress voter turnout. Um, and that's a force to be reckoned with, and it's very disheartening. Yeah, you know, the decline in middle Midwestern Dem Democrats winning has has softened the Democratic Party as far as I'm concerned. They have forgotten how to fight. I mean, voter suppression mm -hmm. and all this voter ID stuff, I mean, they're just, you know, they keep talking about intellectually and all this other stuff. It's so soft and fluffy and unicorns and butterflies. It drives me nuts. Yeah. You know, I grew up working class, and we know what to fight for. I know I'm fighting for my unions. I know I'm fighting for collective bargaining. I don't have any problem with any of that, and I will go toe-to-toe -to -toe with anyone over it. And <laughs> I am sick of the softness of the Democratic Party. If you want to change these things, then you've got to win. There's a time to be scrappy. Yeah. I'm all about scrappy. And this is the time. <laughs> if, if you could identify 
the top two or three issues for you now. What do you think those are? I still, for Ohio and for my district, the number one concern, and you hear it, and it pulls the same as health care. You know, we're fortunate to have good health care systems within our district and within our state. We have good health care systems, but the costs are killing people. They really are. And even in the bedroom communities, that unexpected health care bill that mm-hmm. you're not covered for could be $10,000. I mean, even if you're well, well off, who's sm- going to come up with that? A small one would be $10,000. Yeah. I mean, and, and it gets bigger and bigger. I mean, mm-hmm. the deductible may be met, but you still have co-pays and co-insurance yes. forever. Mm-hmm. You know, and if we p- repeal the Affordable Care Act, the caps go away. So if a child that has lymphoma and they pass their $2 million payout, you're not going to be able to get them insured for the rest of their lives. Right. I mean, that's what we're looking at coming back. Yeah. And that's a very serious problem for a lot of families. I'm not even talking about pre-existing conditions at this point. I mean, the rollback of the ACA right. is devastating to American families. All of us, upper class, lower class, it doesn't make a difference. If you're you know, in an employee-sponsored health care program, it affects you absolutely. And it's killing our businesses, too. How can they keep track of how much health care costs are going to cost? How can you plan that out in a five- or ten-year plan? You can't. You know, they just keep passing it on to employees because they don't have a choice. Are you in favor of cost controls for health care? I think there's a lot of ways we can handle it. I'd like to start out with the most competitive. Um, the United States government has the right to put things out to bid. When they build a bridge, they can't just give it to the president's son-in-law and say he gets to build it for whatever he wants to charges for it that's fine okay it goes out to a competitive bid multiple construction companies put in their rfps and they pick the lowest bid that meet the qualifications we have many pharmaceutical drugs in the united states that have generic competition we do not put them out to bid for three or five year government contracts we have every right to do that that does not invalidate that you don't have a right to negotiate for drugs that came along with the expansion of part d of medicare which said you're not allowed to negotiate drug prices going out to bid is not a negotiation I'm not saying I'll give you 10, you give me 15. That's a negotiation. Going out for a bid is a completely different thing. And it's been held up in court years and years and years that the government has a right to go out to bid. I would imagine probably the question you are asked most about health care, particularly amongst uh, Democratic voters, is single payer. Yes. And you are not a big supporter of a single payer plan. It, it, like anything else, when you're changing stuff like that, it's infrastructure. If you want to have a dramatic change in our health care policies from private insurers to a single payer, it's going to take multiple steps. I don't have enough primary care physicians in the United States to cover every patient in this country. And in the rural areas, they're actually at a loss, more than the cities. Uh, so the rural areas will continue to hurt. I don't have enough hospital beds. I, I, I couldn't take every person and put them in a hospital bed in this country. We simply don't have the infra- infrastructure in place to make it function. So policies like, you know, Medicare for all look pretty on a bumper sticker, but they don't actually administrate it. There's no way to get it done in a short period of time. Over a five-year period, you could give me all the money in the world, and I couldn't make it happen, and this is what I do for a living. I know Medicare and Medicaid forwards and backwards because I have to. And it's just something I can't get done. Could we step it out? Sure. And there's lots of ways to get there. We could make, you know, Medicaid something you could buy into. The state pays in Ohio an average uh, for each Medicaid patient about $5,500 a year. That's far less than you pay for private insurance. That doesn't mean you're going to get a subsidy. You're going to have restricted doctors in a Medicaid system like you do now. 
but most people would there would be a lot of people that would say I'll buy into that that makes sense for me and why should only poor people have the right to the negotiated government pricing why can't every American citizen have a right to that pricing mm-hmm. And that's one example of why you can step it out, especially in rural areas where there's no competition. They tend to pay the highest price for everything because they're small populations all spread out. Sure. So you can't get a competitive market in there. It's not possible. So when you hear someone say, all you need is more competition, that is someone who doesn't understand our health care at all in the United States. And in Ohio, we have seen, in fact, regular Medicaid, the expansion of that under our Republican Governor John Kasich, Mm -hmm. that has been very successful for this state and very controversial for the governor. Yeah, it's it's been, you know, and again, we hear people complaining a lot, well, you know how much money we're spending on this. Why aren't you concentrating why you have so many Americans that are 130% of poverty level? You know, and when they go after a work requirement, it doesn't just go after the expansion. It goes after all of Medicaid. That's two and a half million people in this state that are on Medicaid or Medicaid expansion. You know, Indiana rolled off almost a third of the population with their work requirement. It's just death by compliance. You know, you have to have it in a format. Right. It's got to be in by the sixth of every month. Right. You have to pay a two dollar mm-hmm. premium and have a checking account. I mean, it's not that they don't qualify for the program. They're going to kill them with compliance. And that's the idea of it. It's not to address why wages are so low, why people don't have health care. It's not to address the cost in health care, which can be contained, some through competition, some through, you know, you can only have a price increase of so much per year, right? We do that for utilities. You know, the PUCO sure. says, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to raise mm-hmm. rates, it's got to come through us before you roll it out. Same thing for health care. And know? in all those machinations, the least important thing is health care. Yes, so it's an administrative success. When the numbers are different, well, what it means is that you've thrown people mm-hmm. out, off and they're not covered. And that's all it means. And that yeah. hits our opioid addiction as well, right? Because 70% of the opioid addictions in this country are treated under Medicaid or Medicaid expansion. You know, you start rolling them out. Now, they aren't required to work, but you get rid of the expansion. You're going to lose treatment for these people. And sure. gonna, we're, gonna have higher, we're already number one in the country. Yay. What a great thing to be number one for. And we have other states that have done a really good job with that. West Virginia's done a great job dealing with their opioid addiction, but it cost them money. They actually had to back up what they said. Well, and it cost them money not to deal with it. It did. But, right. you know, yeah. the, their head of health and human services really, he went back to look at what was who was the targeted person. You know, he went, looked over his deaths and said, who's dying? And he came up with 55-year-old white men who are in labor jobs, pipe fitters, HVAC, you know, sure. they get injured on the job, they fall off a roof, they get an opioid as a prescription, and then they get addicted. So they had a very active communication program, mm-hmm. let them know that they're the people most likely to get addicted. They put Narcan everywhere. You know, you had police and fire departments like you do in Ohio now that are choosing between overtime for a police officer or reviving someone for the third time. You know, it's $40 a dose, and you might need multiple sure. doses to wake up one person. That adds up. And it's the poor communities getting hit who already don't have the tax base to support their safety systems right now. Sure. So, I mean, and, and West Virginia said, no, we're going to, you will never have to worry about that again. And they put money behind it. And they put Narcan everywhere and said, we are going to focus on saving lives. And they had a very big drop. But it was, it was astutely done. It was based on medical outcomes. And it was smart. There's a question I'm going to ask you despite my better judgment (laughs) we are as as we are recording this the country is in 
chaos that right now is focused on who the next Supreme Court justice will be and hearings for just, uh, Judge Kavanaugh are taking place as we speak. The critical issue that Democrats on the Judiciary Committee can't seem to get out of him is about the role of the president and the power of the president essentially coming down to, I hate to use the cliche, but I, I think it fits, is the president above the law? And they're asking him questions about things like, can the president, is it, is it constitutional for the president to pardon himself? And, and Judge Kavanaugh won't answer. Or is it constitutional for the president to trade a pardon in exchange for a person not testifying against him? And Judge Kavanaugh won't give an answer. And certainly the whole issue of the president being in deep water, as the as Time magazine of this week just said on its cover story, that the president is in deep legal trouble. And the word impeachment is being bantered about more than it was and particularly among Democrats, more than it was six months ago when no Democrat dared to say the I-word. And people are talking more openly about the I-word now. And I'm wondering if you could just comment. Certainly, as a member of the House, this issue is likely to come up. Well, and, and more importantly, we have to make sure it never comes up again legislatively we need to put some parameters around when you run for president <clears throat> mandatory tax return okay this is no longer can no longer be an option you must divest from all your business interests mm -hmm. i mean we have to set up some parameters it can be after the next election cycle you know that it takes place in 2024 so it doesn't discriminate against president trump but we have to make absolutely sure these conflict of interests and the effects of money on on his decisions or any president's decisions can no longer come into play we expected every person that held the office to be ethical and that was a naivete we can no longer afford evidently <laughs> evidently as far as uh, impeachment goes in my opinion, uh, President Trump, as a businessman, walked the line between legal and illegal his entire life. He'd been walking that line and using the courts to his benefit, from bankruptcy court to criminal court, mm -hmm. and he's very good at it. I don't think it's going to be easy to impeach him. I think he will lawyer up. I think he will fight it tooth and nail. In my own personal opinion, I would rather have him wounded and screaming up to the 2020 election than I want a President Pence. I find a President okay. Pence far more frightening. He'll make it look normal. He'll take away the chaos. Yes. And the policy positions that he and the GOP could pass will devastate this country. And certainly, it will devastate women dramatically. How so? Um, I, I don't think pres the Vice President sees women as equal people. I don't see, I think he sees us as second-class citizens through a religious lens. And I don't think he doesn't like women I simply think that's how he perceives us you know as secondary and obedient and and when you see women from that viewpoint you will see that viewpoint in all things whether it's employment or health care everything mm -hmm. everything's everything. going to be seen through that lens yeah. and I don't see the world through that lens uh, you know I'm an equal citizen under the law and I have a right to equal justice I have a right to equal protections under the law 
and, and I think for me, the vice president stands for the opposite of that for many subsections of our culture, but certainly for women especially. Essentially, you're saying between the devil you know and the devil you don't know, you might want to think about sticking with the one you do know. I, and I, I really do think it's probably you're probably going to have a fair amount of prosecutions of the people around him as things come out. If we take over the House, you know, Don Jr. can no longer say, I'm not turning over my phone records right. to say that I, I didn't tell my dad about it. He's he, They're going to be subpoenaed and they're going to have to roll out, and he lied to Congress. So that's a criminal offense. So all the things that the protections they provided the family and the people that worked around him are going to be gone. And that inner circle that has protected Trump for decades is shrinking. It, it is shrinking. And the people like Don McCann, who's been in politics for a long time, who works as a counsel yes. for the White House, you know, he already knows his legal liability. He's not stupid. You know what I mean? I mean, he's making sure. And he's sure, not sticking around. And he's not sticking around. <laughs> and he's made sure to turn, turn over all information mm-hmm. that makes sure that he is not prosecutable. He's going to make absolutely sure he's not thrown under the bus. And that's a smart man. And I don't see that level of experience to know that's coming. I think a lot of people are going to get hit by the bus around him. I really, really do. Yeah. I Um, think ultimately the act that was successful for him in the small town of New York, it just doesn't play on the international scale. It doesn't play nationally. Uh, And it's it's all he's done all his life. I mean, this is his style. This is his rapport. This is how he does business. I know and have talked to people who have known him almost all his life. And yeah, he's been very, he's been very, very consistent. And I've, I've heard several times from people who know him, he's very charming socially. You know, I don't mean to say that, that this man has no redeeming qualities. I've had several people say they've had great conversations with him. He's a nice guy. I've you heard know. people who've sat with him for long periods of time who came away shaking their heads. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yes. They didn't find the redeeming social value. Okay. And we're also, as we speak, awaiting the uh, release of Bob Woodward's book, Fear, about the president. And certainly the most preeminent journalist, uh, one could argue, in the world has some pretty frightening things to say about his research on Trump, including, and what has surprised me the most, is that the the inner circle in the White House now are there not to protect the president, but to protect the country, that they see themselves as essentially patriots as the last thin line between a force that checks Trump and all of his personality issues and those that that don't. Well, and if Congress was doing its job, if the House was doing its job, then maybe it wouldn't fall to the staff so much, right? But you've got the entire House not standing up to him, right. not, not talking about not just principles or morals or ethics, but the law, the checks and balances they're supposed to do, mm-hmm. you know, doing their job with would slow down some of his worst urges, right? But now it's falling to his staff to try and move papers and distract him and sure. things like that. I mean, honestly, if they were doing their job, there'd be less chance of, of true error coming up. And so is the is the increase of votership that you're talking about and seeing this increase of people's participation and excitement for something like a midterm election, which didn't used to create to generate the amount of fervor that people have now is is it the american public basically doing what congress should be doing but isn't which is saying 
we're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. Well, he's energized the he's energized people to vote, right? Or I think you can say that's exactly how the system is designed. It's supposed to work. To work. Yeah. He is acting. People can look at it and react to it and express their opinions. And from what I hear you're saying, you, uh, what you're talking about is, and it's, it's your it's your expectation that he will simply complete his term and we'll all begin to feel the consequences of his actions and as that accumulates over time he'll become more and more wounded more and more of a political liability uh, and then he'll just gradually fade off into history well I, I do think that's what will happen I do too and yeah. and it's it's unfortunate that uh, you know Congress was not able to do their job and I think that's what the American public is saying pretty loudly now that we want at yeah. least one area of Congress that can check and balance this guy yeah. and I'm happy to say even though the business community was quite happy with their tax cut they're quite concerned with several things going on now with the tariffs and the trade wars now it's hitting their pocket <laughs> and yes. it's, it's more concerning yeah. yes I know a business consultant who travels nationally and that is the big concern well, two, the tariffs, they don't know what the lay of the land is and how it's affecting them. And second is employment. Yeah. They can't find people can't, And he's limiting legal jobs. immigration. He's limiting legal legal migration, yeah. immigration, and he's limiting, he's checking people's citizenship that have been in this country and are legal citizens to see if they lied somewhere, like they didn't put in a oh, speeding yeah. ticket. I mean, that's that's like crazy. Yes, I mean, that's that's yes. so harmful to our workforce and, and to the people that came to this country that we wanted to come to this country. We asked them to come to fill jobs that we need them for right. to be treated so poorly. Right. I mean, and, you know, the idea that a, a freshman congressman is going to stand up to him is laughable. You know, the idea that someone from his own party, I mean, people that have, right. Mark Sanford has been in Congress for years and he right. stood up and got cut off at the knees. Right. There is no way a young man coming in there is going to open his mouth. It's not going to happen. Yeah. As much as I am loving uh, this conversation about Donald Trump, I don't want us to end our conversation with you on that note. And I, Susan, I really want to give you the opportunity to say, what is it that you bring to the table? We've been talking sort of in the theoreticals about diversity and what women bring to the political system, what do you bring? Yeah, I think the ultimate question is, why should people vote for you? That's, it's a fair question, is it not? I think that's always fair to ask. And that is the point, yes. yeah, after all, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's certainly, um, for me, the healthcare background is first and foremost what I bring to the table. That level of expertise allows me to hit the ground running. It's an incredibly difficult subject. It, it's diverse. It has too many <laughs> things going on in it for people to understand it quickly. You could spend five years reading and not be ready to legislate on it. I don't have those issues. Who would have known it's it's a complicated topic? Yeah, who yeah. would have known? <laughs> I would have thunk that one. Um, and I've been part of my community. I mean, I was on the board of a, a child uh, urgent nursery for uh, residential children at Providence House for years. You know, I've helped Westlake um, pass through school levies. This is my community. I am your neighbor, your mother, your sister, your mom. I mean, this is my community. I'm a fabric of my community, and that is different. And you absolutely need that to have someone with skin in the game where they're not sitting above you because they're not part of you. Right. You know, and I think I think that resonates with people a great deal. 
So your allegiance would be to the district, Absolutely. the people in the district. These are all my neighbors. Not These... to your finance, not to your source of funding. No, and and that's the bonus of the uh, two hundred fifty dollar average donation. Sure. Nobody owns me for sure. Sure. Uh, yeah, and 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 those two things are a large part of it. And I and I think because this is not my pipe dream, this is not a power trip for me. Mm -hmm. I'm genuinely doing this to help my neighbors. Uh, it's it's not something, as you said earlier, this is not something I've aspired to all my life. I find it's an absolute need for me to step into the role. So it's less about voting for a Republican or voting for a Democrat. It's more about voting for your kids or voting for the future. Absolutely. Voting for your community. It, it, it makes the difference who you put in that seat. It, this is supposed to be the person closest to you who knows your ins and outs of every community so they can represent you properly. And that's really difficult to do if you've never been here. Susan Moran Palmer, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. We really enjoyed this. And Doug and I would also like to, on behalf of you, urge everybody, don't just vote. Grab your neighbors. Don't forget about your parents. Take your kids with you to the polling place so they can see democracy in teach action. Teach them, yeah. And Absolutely. teach them, and they will learn from you better than any civics book possible. Thank you. Thank you. We'll leave you today with this excerpt from the Declaration of Rights for Women, authored by Susan B. Anthony. We ask justice. We ask equality. We ask that all the civil and political rights that belong to the citizens of the United States be guaranteed to us and our daughters forever. Thanks for listening. Be well, and we'll see you next time.